Second week of December 2009. Lady Gaga went to number one and in the budget, the government revealed how it was in its own toxic relationship with the reality of how bad things were. The worst is over. The international economy has exited recession. Recent indicators suggest that economic activity in this country is turning the corner. And my department expects a return to positive growth within the next six to nine months. Retired primary school principal Anne McMahon remembers it as an anxious time. That was such a scary time. There had been so many, I suppose, misleading statements made about, no, the IMF is not coming. Well, we don't know if the IMF is coming. Yes, they are coming. And each year, you never knew from budget to budget just how bad things were going to be. Twenty years ago, the wage bill for public servants was a modest €8 billion. Euro. By the time of the crash, it had more than doubled. It then cost €17 billion euro to meet pension and pay every year. In its 2010 budget, the government was looking to cut €4 billion euro from spending, much of it from the state's payroll. And for Anne, that amounted to... A little over €72 euro a week something like that. Nearly €300 euro a month was a very sizeable sum for a two-pension household. A year earlier, the government had come looking for the automatic entitlement to a medical card. Government TDs were met by loud heckles from many. Let the minister speak! But they had backed down in the face of a grey wave of righteous fury. 95% of people over Anne McMahon, having recently retired, had enjoyed the medical card for the brief bit of time that she had it. That was a huge thing to give to people and very precious. And they weren't going to let that go easily. But this is not a story about Anne joining either medical card or pension restoration protests. We didn't take part in that. We didn't feel that we should be among those who are going to say we need it. Other people needed it more than we did. Anne is one of the overwhelming majority of Irish people who didn't take to the streets in response to any of the measures that targeted her. Don't get me wrong, she is politically engaged and furious at what the banks, regulators and politicians got away with. There were people here who led to that downfall, politicians and bankers, and they have never been brought to book. And that really makes me cross. But Anne's overriding feeling was, this was all going to happen. Boom, going bust, and then broke. And she felt in too privileged a position to join the sea of placards. I suppose what scared me most was that the state might crash and burn altogether. And if it did, then there was no income, because we both had state pensions. And the other part of it was, well, you felt if families' incomes had been wiped out overnight. Well, I considered myself lucky to have an income and an income that would come every month. So I wasn't going to get up on my high horse about that. You have to say, well, you know, this is the best that can be done just at this moment in time. 
was Anne? Were we all stuck with Gaga in a deadbeat relationship, being gaslit about things getting better when it was actually only going to get worse unless we put our foot down? Or was it a rough patch that we needed to ride out because all marriages have their ups and downs? Was our soundtrack Gaga or the blues? The blues because that's a question that we're posing in this programme. Were the events of ten years ago a deep blue funk, a lost decade from which we were only emerging until recently? Or, with the benefit of ten years' wisdom and reflection, is there another tune more in sync with what happened and how we dealt with it? blues will do. As we ask, why didn't the Irish protest as much as everyone else? Did we just take it lying down? We didn't feel that we should be among those who are going to say we need it. Other people needed it more than we did. Or that's in this particular family. And I would say there were many teachers, and I know my extended family, there are teachers, and they didn't protest that either because they said, look, we can pay pay for private insurance. We have a doctor-only card. We're not going to kick up a stink about this because other people need it more than we did. And what do you think of the people who argued this isn't about whether I do or I don't need a medical card? It's about a universal entitlement to one. Well, I I suppose I'd call that... uh, kind of selfish you know we're pretty well looked after um i have a good pension it's a state pension um i know i worked all my life for it and there were a lot of things we didn't have but we always had a regular income even if it wasn't as much as we thought it was and that makes a difference having a regular income that you can depend upon really does make a difference it's uncertainty in life that creates stress. But you had lost a really significant portion of your income to things that were just not even remotely of your making. Why did you take it on the chin? Why didn't you go out and protest? I didn't mind that. I, we had reorganised our lives to suit retirement, if you like. And I thought, well, if this does some good. If it saves the country, it's something we have to do. And I would say that 99% of my colleagues would have looked at it in a similar way. Was Anne just passive, steamrolled by events and not able to pick herself up to take her complaint to the gates of Leinster House? Or did she have a different perspective? We talked for a long time about her experience of working for the state back in the 70s and 80s, when a third of Irish people lived below the poverty line. We made our educational props from cornflakes boxes, uh, washed butter tubs, yogurt tubs. School was stacked with all of that stuff. We made everything ourselves. We couldn't afford to go and buy anything because we either bought it out of our own resources. There was not a fund to buy that stuff. 
How many of the mums and dads would have been unemployed? At one stage, we did a survey and there were four out of five families were unemployed. So that meant that those families were living on welfare. Would some of the children have been malnourished? We didn't see malnourished children, but children needed lunches sometimes. It was a constant struggle, but we took it in our stride. We didn't, you know, that's the way it was. We lived with it. Uh, Heating for the school was always a problem because the heat flew out the windows and the doors and everywhere else. And uh, the cost of oil was a problem. I know at one stage we discussed the overuse of toilet paper by the children. I mean, it's farcical to listen to it now, but it happened. It happened because money was so short. In fact, there were a few schools around the country in that time that actually threatened to close their doors because they couldn't keep the place heated. Ultimately, I suppose, for Anne, protesting over what she had lost would have felt like she was denying someone more deserving what they needed. The austerity, the way they sectioned out people like unmarried mothers or single parents, uh, carers, I think they also did something on people who were blind. They were all small cohorts of society, people who couldn't scream and make a loud noise, who couldn't really lash back. They're the ones that they targeted and it was a mean, low-down thing to do. They had others they could go to for those bits of money. Does Anne speak for the silent majority? Hard to say, because there were many who would gladly have taken to the streets, but the protest movement had the rug swept out from under it just as it was gathering momentum. The the political scientists did classify Irish civil society and the public as a passive people. I think it's important when people look at back to that period of 2008, 2009, 2010, 11, that in many ways we were a people in shock. And this in part explains why there wasn't an initial explosion of protest like we saw in Greece or Spain or France or Italy. We were concussed, punched drunk and unable to get off the ropes in the immediate period after the crash, argues Rory Hearn, an assistant professor of social policy in Maynooth University who spent a long time considering the successes and failures of protest movements. But gradually, marches grew through 2009 and 10 and grew to the point where they were making the news outside of Ireland. Tens of thousands of people have marched through the streets of Dublin in protest at the government's austerity plans. According to Irish police, around 50,000 took part, although the organisers claimed it was double that. We are in a mess and we just want everyone to to share the burden equally and fairly. We're here to achieve the the fall of this, this government for a start because it's going to give in, it's going to cave in to the IMF and the EU. I think the thing that uh, hurts me the most and hurts everyone is why are we paying for the... Why is a taxpayer paying for the IMF? Why are we bailing out the banks? These are the people that took their risk. Let them take the hurt. Let them feel the pain, right? We see initially there was large protests, very large ones. There was a public sector strike. Um, There was 150,000 people in November 2010 organised by the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Massive protests and appetite at that point for protests. But then, of course, in 2011, we see the Labour Party entering government. And then there's this period of quiet. Because the trade union movement decided to support Labour in power, the organisational infrastructure of protest was removed from a people who very much wanted to take direct political action. Mass dissent was quashed, 
for the want of an outlet. But then... People started making their own. My children, it uh, was, would be the main, that I could uh, look my children in the face when this was all over and say, uh, we tried our best. That's why we matched. Pat Maloney and Kathleen Queeley had lost one child to immigration, lost the family business to the recession, and nearly lost the family home to the banks. Everything that we ever knew or believed in was just was, was wrecked. Politics, our government, banks, everybody that we would have been brought up to expect support and guidance from. We now knew that wasn't the case at all. Pat was Fianna Gael, Kathleen was Fianna Fáil, mainly because that's what they were born into. They both described themselves before the crash as moderate, middle-of-the-road centrists. You could see the writing on the wall and I was called in one morning and put on short time. And with a, a son going to school and bills to pay and a mortgage, uh, having to go over to the local social welfare office and sign on was the most humiliating thing I've ever had to do. We almost lost the house. And a lot of it was because of the bank charges. I didn't tell Pat for the first eight or nine months what was going on with our mortgage. I couldn't see the point in the two of us being that terrified. When you have a family to look after uh, and, you're, and you can't support them and you've, you could lose your house and be out on the street, that's, that's, that was the lowest, that was the lowest point of it. Never thought that Anything like that could possibly happen because we were good people. We were care we were careful, we were we lived a good life. We paid our, our mortgage, we paid our debts on time. And for this to happen and to wipe out everything that we were, I do believe it I, I, I will always carry that fear as a warning. If I'm radicalized, I'm radicalized because of Fianna Fall, Fine Gael and Labour because that's what they have taught me so much against them that I would never vote for them ever again, because I would never again believe that they have my best interests. Radicalised by their experience and feeling abandoned by their government, they found purpose and support in joining the Ballyhay Says No march to campaign against the taxpayer repaying bank debt bondholders. The protests weren't a success by the ambitious standard they set for themselves, not paying any more bank debt at all, but they were a success in their own right. Oh, we did seriously think we were going to change it. We thought, naively, <laughs> we thought, well, we thought not, not just us, we thought the, the country would, would eventually see uh, what was being done and they would join us and that marches would spring up all over the country. Now, so in some villages they did, it, it, I don't know if we couldn't make people see how much money this was going to cost us. We could very easily make them see the water charges were going to were going to take 150, 300, 400 euros out of their pockets every year. But we couldn't make them see that it was going to cost them 11,000 for every man, woman and child in the country. So they would go out and march in large numbers for water charges but they wouldn't for something that was way bigger. And Pat, where do you think you went wrong in either the arguments you used or your tactics in that you weren't able to persuade more people to come and rally to your cause? It was when you started talking about billions, Philip. 
when you would start talking about millions and billions, the eyes would glaze over. They'd say, I can't understand that. That's too complicated. And they just would not listen. And it, it wasn't. We tried to explain it down to how much it would cost for hospitals, how to pay, how much this money could be spent on nurses, on housing, and they just could not comprehend or did not want to comprehend or thought it's too big for us and there's nothing we can do about it. And they just turned their backs. But your interpretation then suggests that the only reason that more people didn't come out onto the streets and join you was simply because they just didn't understand what was going on. Do you really think that that's the case? I don't know. Is it willful ignorance? If you give them, if you give them a, an inconvenient truth or a convenient lie, they'll believe the convenient lie. It, no, it's because it makes their life a bit easier. They don't have to. They don't have to go out on the street, and it's a hard thing to go out on the street. It's. You I mean you're as you're going out on, the, on marching down your local town. And you've got people that are going to mass or coming from mass or going to the shops and they're looking at you marching down the main the main street. And I can only imagine what they were thinking. Kathleen, ultimately the protest didn't succeed in its aims. Um, I'm not going to ask you anything as crude as if you had to, would you do it all again? Because I suspect I know what the answer is. But did your experience make you question the value of protests such as this? Only a small bit. I would every time 100% say, go out and hear, let your voice be heard. If there's somebody wronging you, if the government are not doing what they told you they were going to do, then go out and tell them. Because if you sit quiet at home worrying about it, what are you going, you're never going to achieve anything. At least have a hand or part in change. People were too timid. Afraid of retribution, the protests were ignored by media or perhaps they ran too far in front of public opinion. No doubt that explains why a good many didn't protest against an enormous injustice heaped on us all. But think back to Anne McMahon. A lot of people didn't protest because they were aware how relatively fortunate they were. Kicking up a stink when there were others in greater need than yourself just seemed wrong. But before we write ourselves off as a nation of doormats, in 2011, we got louder and more creative in our forms of protest. They can find money to bail out banks. So why can't they, you know, find money to build homes for people? We met Debbie Mulhall in an earlier programme. She's one of the leading lights in a community action group that went to war over the conditions of their council-rented flats. There was regurgitation from washing machines and things like that. What's regurgitation from a washing machine? Um, it's, you know, it's like dirty water coming up from your um, sink. There was no proper ventilation, so the walls and ceilings were breeding grounds for fungal moulds. And if you were unlucky enough to live on the ground floor, you could expect the content of your upstairs neighbour's toilet to regularly come bubbling up through yours. And it's one of my clearer memories as, you know, a young person. 
um, seeing my father cleaning up all the dirt that had come up out of the toilet and it wasn't wasn't pleasant because it obviously wasn't your own. It wasn't just not pleasant. I mean, that's a really serious health risk. Yes, it, it would have been, yeah. The council's plan to fix the problem involved rebuilding the flats from the ground up in partnership with a private developer. But that went out the window after the crash. But rather than accept their lot, the action group stepped up their protest. We were fed up and it was just like we needed to do something. And I think as well, I I think it's fairly important to say that it wasn't a thing that we done as one person. It was a collective thing that we did. It was like power in numbers. We started to empower the residents as well to say that, you know, this is not acceptable. We we should not have to live like this, no more than anybody else should. I'm not just talking about people in Dolphin House. I think that, you know, everybody has, has a right to adequate housing. And human rights was the key. They protested, they did media interviews, they lobbied. But this became a next-generation protest. They elevated their campaign above the level of placards and pickets to identifying their legal right to adequate housing and getting experts to support their position. We had, like, experts we would call, you know, human rights experts, who they even said that our homes were inhabitable. The thing is, though, the City Council and the government had at the time a response to your demands that was pretty hard to come back at. We're broke, we're bankrupt, we would build these flats for you, but there's just no money to do it. And it was plenty of people who accepted that answer and went back to their place in the queue. You guys didn't, though. Why did you persist? What was different about you? Because at the end of the day, it's human beings that's living in these homes. And no human being should have to live in that that sort of home. So we had to keep persistent to make sure that we were heard and to make sure that people got what they deserved. And the community essentially organised. They they spoke in public. They spoke in the media. In the midst of the austerity crisis, they pressured government directly. Social policy professor Rory Hearn from Maynooth University again. They went to the city council. Importantly, also, they came with alternative plans and they said this is the way things could be done. And they showed the city council and the government that actually there could be interim measures put in place and they took a public stand. And that was the most important thing. They went public in the media. They were prepared to explain their issue and they used it in that human rights frame. And ultimately, their pressure was successful to the point that we've seen Dolphin House the first phase of that regeneration, taking a long time, but being built in 2018, whereas unlike other estates like O'Devney Gardens, for example, where the community was utterly defeated and emptied, didn't achieve that and being in the midst of a, another public-private partnership controversy at the moment. Though their campaign is far from over, Debbie was talking to me from inside her new flat. I have to say I really love it. I have more space than I would have had in my old apartment. And I have a balcony now where I can sit out. I have um, a lovely view. This is not just the story of one woman who no longer needs to worry when her upstairs neighbours flush the toilet. It's about a new model of protesting born in the darkest days of austerity cutbacks that actually delivers real results. I think that we are a society that still has the scars of austerity from the mortgage arrears crisis to housing to homelessness 
to people's indebtedness, to the memory of that period. A lot of people are still hurting. They hold that memory. And we are a people that have changed, I think. And if we look at it from, for example, repeal, we look at the climate protests, we look at, for example, social media now, the housing protests, the Irish people, and particularly younger generations, particularly younger generations, are more willing to actually say no, to stand up around social injustices, to stand up around inequalities. And I think we are no longer a silenced, browbeaten people. And that has very significant implications. It's a very positive development and has very big implications for how politics is done, how government is done, how the state is done. And I think in many ways we can look back and see that we're a population that is still healing from, you know, 150 years ago. You know, that famine, the time people were silent. But this time we weren't silent. And that was a very positive thing. And for civil society and Irish civil society and politics, I think that it will continue to influence that into the future. And this is why the blues may not be our theme tune. Yes, the recession and austerity programme sucked the guts out of the country, but just as it took, it gave. And we got a reinvigorated civic society, a robust network of community action groups and citizens who are no longer content to wait on political patronage to get what they are due. But this series is far from over. So, for the moment, the blues will continue to do. Boombus Broke is an RTE original podcast presented and produced by Philip Boucher Hayes and recorded at home in his living room, which I hope explains the occasionally uneven sound quality. Thanks for listening and stay safe. <laughs>